1: Whatever you want to say about my French pronunciation or my bloody anything other than pronu- German, don't even worry about it, don't even worry about that. Better at German than I'm in mean English when it comes to pronunciation. That's an easy, easy game here. So uh, anyway, Stroyensee. we'll probably stick with Streunzi because otherwise I'm going to sound like a pretentious idiot. So Streunzi, right, he's a uh, he's his bloke who in the late 18th century, he managed to, uh, to more or less become the de facto ruler of the kingdom of Denmark. And how did he do this? you may ask. Being of common blood, he's not a a royal, not a noble, nothing of that kind. You'll be amazed to learn that he did it by, in all seriousness, sleeping his way to the top. That's right. We've all heard of this sort of thing, right? We've all heard of people willing to do whatever it takes to advance their career, but you wouldn't think it would turn you into the uh, sort of, you know, more or less the regent of a European kingdom, but that's what happened here for straw and Zia, mate here. It is an accurate, if somewhat selective summary of what this bloke managed to do, as there are a couple of other things going on for him, uh, you know, outside of that, that altered, ultimately ended up with him taking control of Denmark. And that's exactly what we're going to get across today. All thanks to, once again, she's done it again, two in a row, bloody legend, Birke Urnschläger, She's, uh, well, still can't really say her name, but thanks so much all the same, Burker mate. Sorry about the mispronunciation. Danish, a lot harder, a lot harder than German. At least in German, all the letters actually, you know, do what they say on the tin. Anyway, Burker got in touch with a bunch of different suggestions. Norwegian heavy heavy, sabotage, uh, heavy water sabotage from last week, of course, and uh, this bloke this week, plenty of others. And so maybe, maybe this will just turn into the Burker show. I don't know. We'll see how we go. But this week, this story too good to pass up. Um, and uh, so I suppose you know, apologies to all the other listeners whose uh, suggestions are being eclipsed by the uh, by the premium, top shelf burker uh, offerings. Uh, sorry, everyone. I'll I'll get around to that at some point. Anyway, this bloke, Johann Friedrich Struensee, right? He was a doctor, and he rose through the ranks to become the king of Denmark's personal physician. And from there, he pivoted marvelously to basically supplant the king and take control of the country. And I'll tell you this, he did a a bloody good job of things too, I reckon, once he was in the top job, but we'll get across that a bit later. And of course, we'll get across his rather grisly end. I don't want to spoil it, but there is a good bit of horrible murder this week. Don't worry about that. But before all this, we've actually got to talk about the king himself, and then we'll bring in our mate uh, Streunzi a little bit later on. So let's get underway. We're going all the way back to 1749, here to the 29th of January, when Christian the seventh of Denmark is born. He is born as the son of Frederick V. Since 1513, every single king of Denmark has been called either Christian or Frederick and alternating, uh, they they sort of take it in turns. And we had this great big bloody long line of Christian Frederick, Christian Frederick until 1972 when Queen Margarita II took the throne. But interestingly, she counted herself as a Christian and so called her son Frederick. Her dad had been called Frederick, she counted herself as a, as, as a Christian. then her son's Frederick. so keeping the pattern going, every second one's still going to be a Frederick. Uh, her son, by the way, Crown, uh, Crown Prince Frederick is someone you may have heard of, especially if you're an Australian. He's the one that met Mary Donaldson in a pub in Sydney uh, in 2000 at the Olympics, and, and bloody married her. So the next Queen of Denmark is going to be an Australian. Good on you, Mary. I mean, you know, monarchies are ob- obviously obsolete and unnecessary, but still, you always want to see another Australian come good like that. So good on you, Mary. Uh, you know, good on your, you, you. You've done. You've done what you, you've come good. eh? Anyway, back in 1749. Young Christian is born. His mum sadly dies when he's you know three years old, so very, very young blo- young young kid losing his mum, they're very tragic. sad for anyone. Uh, but his dad remarries, this time to a woman named Juliana Maria of Brunswick-Wolfenbüttel. Uh, remember her name, because she's going to come up again a bit later on. But anyway, in 1766, at the age of 16, he becomes Christian the Seventh of Denmark when his dad, Frederick V dies. Now, this your poor young bloke, he wasn't the most stable fella. He um, he may have had schizophrenia. Uh, he may have, he had a couple of different mental health issues for sure. These days we tend to think he was schizophrenic. He definitely had trouble conducting himself as you might expect a king, a king to. You know, regardless of uh, of what was going on with him there, he was unable to control his emotions and his impulses. He had you know he had his mental health issues made it more or less impossible for him to govern. And, you know he'd do some of the most ridiculous things. He'd play leapfrog over the backs of dignitaries as they bowed to him. He'd cut about Copenhagen at night with a gang and try to beat people up with a spiked club. He would slap visiting diplomat. Diplomats about the face if they said things he didn't like, and uh, they'd throw furniture out the palace windows. One time, he even put pins in the cushions of his grandma's seat. And he also had a very unfortunate habit. This young bloke of uh, of cranking down more or less anywhere and everywhere, which again isn't isn't the most seemly thing for a king. Well, isn't the most seemly thing for anyone to do really. And no, you know, not in the public, mate. No one wants to see that. Do it behind closed doors. You know, keep keep that sort of stuff to yourself. Anyway, look. We're not going to be too hard on this poor fella, suffering as he did from these mental health issues, but it's clear it's clear to say, very fair th- fair observation to say that he wasn't fit to rule in the state that he was in there. So the laws that oversaw Danish royalty, however, they had no mechanism. No they have any kind of mechanism to deal with a mentally ill monarch. And so his counselors, his advisors, his ministers, they all just do their best to govern on his behalf while he's, you know, sort of uh, struggling, you know, with, with these uh, various mental health issues. Uh, they organized a, mar- a marriage for him to his 15-year-old cousin, Princess Caroline Matilda, who was the, uh, you know, as you do, your cousin, no worries, uh, who was the sister of George the Third of the United Kingdom. Actually, sorry, no, he wasn't technically uh, George the Third of the United Kingdom yet. He would become that in 1801. At this point, he was the king of Grit- Britain and Great Ireland at this point. Yeah, but whatever, that's by the by. Any case, as so I say, Christian Seventh, he married his cousin, as you do, uh, and it's safe to say that the marriage was... Um, Look, well, you know, not a particularly happy one, to put it mildly. Here, by all accounts, Christian didn't like Caroline Matilda at all, and uh, and after putting off consummating the marriage for as long as possible, he finally got it over with, and then get uh, went back to uh, to completely ignoring her. Now, look, he was not a very happy bloke at all, and his ministers were looking for any and every possible way to treat his illness, and this is where our mate Johann Friedrich Stroinski comes in, right? Because. Stronsley ends up playing uh, an enormously, a, a pivotal role in, uh, in the king's life. Uh, so let, let's jump back a couple of years and have a chat about sort of how he gets to, to where he is when he comes into the story of Christian uh, the seventh year. So Stronsley was born in 1737 on the 5th of August. He's a little older than Christian. He's uh, 12 or so, or so years old. He was born in Prussia as the son of a theologian, and he studied at the University of Halle, where he became very interested in Enlightenment ideals, you know, reason, progress, liberty, constitutional government, separation of church and state, all that sort of thing, absolutely bloody brilliant, love all that. And um, when he was a bit older, in his 20s, he moved to Altona, uh, which at the time was part of Denmark, a town just on the outsides of Hamburg. Hamburg, at that point, was its own sovereign city-state, it was a bit like Singapore uh, is today. But it was surrounded by Danish territory there to the north and, uh, and, and to, the, to, the, to the, well, I guess the northwest where Altona is. Anyway, so Schweinze lives in Altona for, uh, for 10 years. He had a great time. He worked as a doctor. And after, I, I mean, I guess, I guess it originally kind of struggled a little bit to, uh, to make ends meet, make enough cash for a while there. But eventually he settled into a very comfortable lifestyle. He wrote extensively, mainly uh, Enlightenment philosophy, and he made friends with some aristocrats who used to be part of the royal court in Copenhagen. Now, the royal court had done its best to hide Christian's mental illness from the public, and most people didn't know of his condition. But all the same, in 1768, two years into Christian's monarchy, his court was looking for some physicians to accompany him on a tour of some of the other European courts. They wanted to make sure that this bloke was going to be looked after, keep his outbursts to a minimum, make sure that he you know, more or less behaved himself while he was off representing uh, the Kingdom of Denmark uh, you know, around the traps here. So, Streunzi's mates, they recommend him for the job as a doctor, you know, as someone with a little bit of medical experience here like that. They recommend him for this job, and luckily enough, he gets it. So in April uh, 1768, sure enough, he's appointed as one of the physicians of uh, of the king. And on the 6th of May in 1768, Streunzi, he sets off as part of Christian VII's entourage as he cuts about Europe. And over the next eight months, they visit Britain France, the Netherlands, various courts in Western Germany, and uh, and Christians ministers—they cannot believe their luck because is bloody excellent at his job he seemed to have had a very very positive influence on the king indeed he was calmer and more collected and as they put it he caused fewer embarrassing scenes and obviously you know when you're trying to manage someone like that in very high uh, you know high important situations like that with other other monarchs other dignitaries whatever else like that very important of course to uh, uh to represent the uh the, the royal court of denmark in a, in a favorable light and the tour as a result was much more successful than they had ever hoped it could possibly be so When they arrived back in Copenhagen in January 1769... Stroinzy is immediately offered a job as Christian's personal physician, which of course he accepts. He's bloody good at this job, and this is going to be a huge leg up for him entering, you know, into the into the the royal courts, the world of the aristocracy, all that sort of stuff. Our boy, he's really come up with this position. It uh, came the honorary title of a state councillor and a position at court. Not to mention, of course, direct access to the literal king of Denmark. So nice one there, Johan. You've really done uh, done yourself proud. And I will tell you this. Stryansy did not waste the hand he'd been dealt, not at all. He very quickly moved to solidify his position, not just as a member of the king's personal entourage, but also as a courtier, you know, his political position within the court, the Royal Danish Court. He, he moved to very much cement his uh, and, uh, you know, make sure that he had a, a good foundational base when it came to uh, the, uh, the, the, the continued verticality of his career, because that's what he's very ambitious, very ambitious by the sound of things. Throughout 17, uh, 1769, he cemented himself as uh, as a trusted associate, trusted ally of the king. And eventually, he was promoted to cabinet secretary to the king himself, which means he had access to all the inner workings of the government, all the paperwork and all the correspondence, everything that needed to be put in front of the king. Strunzi was the man who did it. He was doing an incredible job in securing a position of great favour and influence with Christian, but he didn't stop there, I can tell you that. Not only was he looking after the health and well-being of the king, he also, of course, was responsible for the king's family, and in October 1769, Caroline Matilda, the king's wife, the queen, she fell ill, and she needed the attention of the royal physician, which, of course, Struensee duly provided. But he ended up providing her with a lot more than that, I can tell you, because poor old Caroline Matilda, as I, you know, as I'd mentioned... She'd been more or less completely cast off and cast off, you know, and ignored by her husband. There, uh, the king had gotten her pregnant, you know, hit it and quit it, uh, and then went back to uh, behaving like she didn't exist. He's going off rooting, you know, other birds, courtesans, all the, all the works, just sort of absolutely, you know, he's going about town like a mad thing. So, Caroline Matilda, poor, you know, poor woman. She's there, she's lonely, miserable. She's miles away from her native Britain. She's got no mates, no friends. She wasn't allowed to bring any of her, uh, her personal entourage, any of her, any of her chamber maids or ladies in waiting over with her. So she's absolutely hating life. Now, perhaps Struansy may have just seen her as another way to gain further political power to begin with, right? But after a while, for whatever the reason, he did whatever he could to uh, to get on side with the young queen in a, in a major way. Now, this wasn't an easy task, again, to begin with. She didn't like Struansy at all. But, uh, you know, he was kind. He was sympathetic. He listened to. He was a, he was a shoulder to cry on. And he did what he could to make her feel less lonely, less miserable, and she ends up warming up to him. Now, look, you know this isn't a romance novel. I don't have to draw it out, and I don't have to ratchet up the tension, sort of turn this big, you know, into a, you know, in a whole soap opera. So I can just sort of, you know, bugger it. I can skip straight to the good stuff. Before long, Struanzi and 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 Caroline Matilda—they're rooting, yeah, you know, hopping into bed with each other, and they begin affair. They begin an affair in early 1770. Now, you would think. This would be an incredibly dangerous thing to do. People have had their head chopped, uh, heads chopped off for less. Uh, you know, cook holding not only your boss but also the bloody king of Denmark, mate. But weirdly, the king didn't seem to care at all. He was a big fan of Stroinski, as we talked about. He was so he, he was just he was supremely indifferent about his wife as well. And so the affair just didn't seem to register, register or even bother him. You know, even in the slightest, which is a pretty good thing for both and and Caroline Matilda, because she's going around flaunting the fact that she's rooting Strewnsy to the whole world. She's chatting to her chambermaids about it, she openly had Strewnsy come, come to her rooms in the palace there like that, you know, she's showing off the rumpled clothing that they were wearing, all that sort of stuff, and you just dance with, they dance with each other openly in front of everyone at balls for the entire evening they'd be together there like that. So... The king, even if he's you know supremely indifferent, as I say to all of this, even if he doesn't care about it, I tell you what, other courtiers certainly did. They felt like They, uh, they felt like this. Uh, you know, th- this young German upstart who's coming out of here out of nowhere is making a mockery of the uh, of the Danish royalty, the House of Oldenburg, this revered uh, royal house that uh, has ruled Denmark for so long. And uh, he made a fair few enemies by cutting the king's lunch. I can tell you that a lot of these people, uh, you know, they've been part of the Danish court since before he'd arrived. And and they didn't like this new sort of balance of power. They didn't like the way the king was falling under this bloke's influence. They especially didn't like the fact that he was rooting the queen. But Streunzi's power. And influence in the royal court it only grew it grew and grew and grew here the king loved stronzi because he looked after and took care of him and the queen also loved stronzi because he well you know looked after and took care of her although in a an entirely different fashion you would have thought and so towards the end of 1770 stronzi's influence over uh Christian the uh, Christian the seventh it resulted in real concrete steps being taken to consolidate his power at court he advised the king to fire the count you know fire this council here or remove that minister there, and slowly and surely paved a way to build up his own power as one of the the closest most trusted allies of the king himself you know getting rid of all these other rivals his opponents anyone who might stand in his right in his way and this coincided with a time when christian's tenuous grip on reality was only getting worse and worse and worse until he was more or less at a point where you know he'd sort of just descend into these torpers, right and he'd sign anything that uh that Strenzy put in front of him. And this all finally came to a head on the 18th of December 1770, when Strønzi appointed himself Minister of the Privy Council, which well and truly solidified his position of near absolute power. And he wielded this absolute power very freely indeed. He dismissed department heads, rivals, foes, anyone who threatened to stand his way, and then used the Privy Council to rule Denmark more or less absolutely. Because, as I say, Denmark at this, uh, at this point in its history, it wasn't a constitutional monarchy as it is today. It was absolutist. The king had absolute power. And Struensee more or less controlled the king to the point where he was sleeping with his wife and so absolutely, absolute power was more or less you know, entirely invested in Strunzi at this point. So his rise was complete. He had control of an entire country. He had the kingdom at his fingertips, the powerless King Christian VII under his thumb. So what did he do with such power? How did he make his mark on the history of the world as the de facto ruler of a powerful European nation? What legacy did Strunzi leave for himself after having slept his way to the top? From the end of 1770 onwards, Struensee exercised near-absolute power over the entire Kingdom of Denmark. And do you know what he did? Amazingly, incredibly. There was no oppression, there was no tyranny, there was nothing in the way of corruption or despotism or anything like that. You'll remember that Struensee was a dedicated follower of the Enlightenment, and he was well and truly guided by this Enlightenment thinking. It guided his actions while ruling Denmark as head of the King's Cabinet here are some of the things that he did this is this is a non-exhaustive list of some of the uh, some of the change some of the reforms that struenzi uh, put into place while he was you know the de facto the regent of the kingdom of denmark check this out he abolished slavery abolished indentured servitude forced labor of every kind was abolished by this bloke uh, both within denmark and throughout its colonies he also abolished capital punishment for theft and torture as part of the criminal justice system and criminalized bribery and corruption. he reformed the Danish noble system, he banned nepotism, favoritism, all these uh, taxation laws that meant that the nobles and the, uh, the the you know the wealthy elite had been getting away with stuff for years and years their privileges they had. He even abolished many aristocratic titles altogether from the first place major shakeup of the Danish upper classes here. He reformed the justice system and the military. He fought corruption and the wastage of public funds in both of those areas. He also reformed uh, universities and hospitals. He diverted public funds to support these state-run institutions. He reformed and nationalised parts of of the Danish agricultural sector. He established government stores of grains to offset variance in the grain price at market, make sure it was always affordable. And perhaps most importantly, when it came to him personally, to his career, he liberalized the press he abolished state censorship of journalism and 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 print media and this had very powerful consequences for stroinsky as we'll come uh, as we'll come to uh, in just a little bit here we'll get across exactly what that meant for his career uh, very shortly but think of this this bloke had an entire kingdom under his control in the 18th century and he used it to enact progressive forward-thinking ideas that were Well and truly ahead of their time. Denmark today is known for being this Scandinavian liberal paradise. Going there, visiting the country feels like you're time traveling a couple of years into the future. To be honest, and this Danish liberalism obviously goes back a very bloody long way. They say that power corrupts and that absolute power corrupts absolutely, but Struansey proved to us that this isn't always so. I mean, look, okay, let's be fair. The bloke was an adulterous manipulator, sure, but. He knew a thing or two about political philosophy. That much is abundantly obvious. Unfortunately, however, he missed a couple of the lectures on political realism, it seemed, because he ended up being the architect of his own demise with many of these, uh, these uh, reforms and the way that they were received. Initially... After he first, you know, first ascended to power, public opinion was very much in his favour. He was seen as a positive influence on not only the king, you know, restoring the king to, uh, to a level where he could uh, you know, at least be a little more functional, a little, little happier, uh, but also the kingdom in general, especially amongst the middle classes, which benefited so strongly from, uh, from his reforms. These Enlightenment ideals today that we take for granted, the ideals that spurred the French and the American revolutions, you know, they, they were just that at this time, they were revolutionary. And while Trunzi's enlightenment thinking brought him a great favour to begin with, unfortunately for him, it didn't last. I mentioned before that he was the architect of his own downfall, and he certainly was. Thanks to his decision, more than anything else, his decision to uh, liberalise the press, establish a free press, uncensored by the palace, this was eventually the uh, he, the patard upon which he was hoisted, because it resulted in two things. One was very funny, and the other, to be honest, was was not. <laughs> uh, number one, the funny one first was, uh, well, more or less exactly what you would expect from a, a certain kind of person. Uh, you know, the kind of person who would do this once, once they found out they could print whatever they wanted, uh, they started printing the crudest, most vulgar and offensive things they could think of. For example, uh, one th- one of the things I found that was printed in Denmark after the, the press was li- liberalised by uh, Struensee was a woodcut of a grave, his theoretical grave, with people and dogs busting grumpies beside it, which, you know... Might not be the most highbrow political commentary, but he's still pretty bloody funny. They also just printed long strings of rude words in uh, in in newspaper articles, pamphlets, that sort of stuff. You know, piss, fart, willy. The king's a nutcase. This was stuff that was you know now printed because there was no you know no palatial oversight anymore. It was fantastic. So absolutely brilliant. Struans are here it invited people to express themselves freely, and that's exactly what they did. So I'm a big fan of that. The second thing, however. Was a lot more somber. Very serious business here. And for Struensee, a lot more dangerous than a dog, you know, pinching out a turd on his grave. Because Struensee, he had his fair share of political enemies by this stage, and some of them very powerful indeed. Once the press was allowed to print whatever it wanted without interference, these people, they made their voices heard. The people that Struensee's reforms had affected the most negatively also happened to be, of course, the wealthiest people in the country. This, you know, this ruling elite, the aristocrats, the nobles, they were not happy with how things had uh, had ended up under under the, the de facto regency of this upstart German, this grubby German commoner who'd come along and upset the apple cart. They were happy with how things were before this bloke had come and stuffed it all up from them, for them. So... They started to spend their money to make their voices heard. They started to distribute newspapers and leaflets and pamphlets. The newly uncensored press was the perfect vehicle for them to stir up anti Struensee sentiment. Reams and reams of paper were printed, criticizing and denouncing Struensee in order to turn public opinion against him. And unfortunately for Struenzy, this dedicated smear campaign ended up being very successful indeed and what could he do what could he do he was he was living well you know they say the pen is mighty than and the sword and he wasn't living by the sword he was living by the pen you live by the pen and you die by the pen and this is what happened here destroys. and spoilers alert the papers printed printed endless criticism of him and it, look in fairness some of the criticism was perhaps warranted they they accused the papers accused him of uh of having no respect for danish culture and or, or customs and You know, this wasn't exactly an unfounded accusation because he couldn't even speak Danish. He insisted that all the court business was conducted in his native German. And on top of that, he purged countless public servants from government positions as part of his determined fight against nepotism. But then the replacements that were brought in uh, were much less experienced or much less competent, really. And some of them were only employed because Strunzi knew that they'd be loyal to him, which was, you know, a new type of nepotism entirely. So some of the criticisms were, you know, at least they had a, a reasonable foundation. Some were a, a little more baseless. They included the way that, you know, he'd more or less deposed the king by sidelining him from political relevance, which you could argue, I suppose, he did. But also the king just wasn't, you know, mentally fit for the, the, the task, the challenge of uh, of ruling a kingdom. Uh, nonetheless this sidelining of their monarch it had, it had rubbed a, a lot of Danes the wrong way. I mentioned that uh, you know his uh, his his mental health issues obviously kept him from doing his job but they were also hidden from the general public. Most people didn't know that he was struggling with the, you know what what they we thought at the time was just madness and insanity. Obviously today we can be a little more sympathetic, a little more informed about how things actually were for this poor bloke. But uh, most of the Danish populace, they didn't know that Christian wasn't fit to rule. And so they were angered by the perceived marginalization of their king. And in addition to this, let's not forget that the bloke was rooting the Queen, which put a lot of people offside in its own right, you know, especially, especially in July 1771 when Caroline Matilda gave birth to her second child, a child who was said was to bear a very striking uh, uh, physical resemblance to Stroinsey himself. There was a lot of angry speculation over who the father was, and you can probably guess the ending today. It's more or less accepted as fact that young Princess Louise Augusta was indeed the daughter of Zee, although she was officially recognized officially considered the daughter of Christian the 7th and 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 as a result in you know inherited all the all the titles and the and the pomp and circumstance from her, uh, her her supposed father there anyway ultimately the ultimate result of this liberalization of the press you know quite apart from everything else was the re- was was public opinion firmly turning against Struensee who by the end of 1771, after you know a year of being in control of the kingdom, was still ploughing through reform after reform after reform. Bugger what the people are saying about him. He's still there forcing through these reforms, letting the age of enlightenment well and truly take hold in the kingdom of Denmark. Throughout this period, as the defector, I might add, you know, while he was the de facto leader of Denmark, he he issued over a thousand new orders. He showed no sign of, of slowing down whatsoever. However, it wasn't to last, because in in, uh, in 1772, in early 1772, it would all come to an end for our mate Johann Friedrich Strunzi. His downfall may have seemed sudden to him but it had been bubbling and fermenting away under the surface for quite some time. After the birth of, uh, well, you know, who we can, what we consider to be his daughter, Louis, Louise Augusta. In October 1771, 10 months he's been in charge now, he gave himself the title of Count, which didn't go over so well with the general public, but in particular, it incensed the upper class. Not only as he cook-olded their king, they now hated the thought of this unwashed peasant rubbing shoulders as an equal amongst their ranks. So, as a result... A plot against truancy began to take shape in a much more, uh, I, I guess, a much more practical and realistic way here. All of this dissent, all of this dissatisfaction with this bloke began to take a very, very deadly form because at its head was Juliana Maria of Brunswick. Wolfenbüttel, remember her? I asked you to remember her, so I hope you I hope you have. I mean, I don't ask much of you as a listener. There's no exams, there's no tests, but I did say I remember her name. She was the stepmother of Christian the Seventh, stepmother of the king, the second wife of his father, who sought to take power away not only from Stroyensee, but also from the king himself, so as to see instead herself and her son in charge of things. So to that end the Queen Dowager, she pulled together willing conspirators and hatched a plot to take struency out of the picture altogether. Other nobles who supported, uh, who, who, you know, supported her, opposed struency for whatever reason, his liberal reforms maybe, his weakening of the aristocracy, or the fact that, you know, again, he was rooting the Queen, they all joined Juliana Maria's plot, which finally came a in 1772, in January 1772, long time in the running, long time, a lot, lot of planning, a lot of uh, back-end work here, but ultimately, on the 16th of January 1772, the Danish Royal Court held a masquerade ball, and this was chosen as the time to strike. In the early hours of the 17th, perhaps while they were sleeping off the booze, Struensee, Caroline Matilda, and some other Struensee loyalists were arrested. Now, these arrests apparently, they apparently took place in the name of the king, however, the fact, the fact of the matter was that Juliana Maria had forced her way into the King's Chambers and scared, frightened and bullied Christian in his rooms into signing the arrest warrants for, uh, you know, again, people who he considered to be very close to him. Well, not his wife necessarily, but definitely Struensee anyway. And as a result, the Royal Guard, they kicked in the doors of the private chambers of Struensee and, and, uh, and Caroline Matilda and, and, and a few other people, and they took all of these people into custody, the custody they took them. They locked them up, chained Strozzi to a pillar, and he was charged with. Uh, oh dear, I forgot how to pronounce. It. I even I even looked it up, and I've forgotten how to pronounce it. Uh, les majesté, the it's the it's the French word that means offending the di- dignity of the sovereign. Uh, he was charged with having done this for having usurped the ro- uh, royal power. He was locked up, as I say. He was eventually tried, and despite his best efforts to defend himself, he was of course found guilty. He had flown in the face of the rich and the powerful to too great an extent to be able to hope to get away with it, and the people that he had spurned wasted no time in getting their own back. And these people portrayed Strunzi's downfall as the liberation of the beloved King Christian Seventh, who was free now from the insidious influence of this common outsider. You know, not just like in the papers and that sort of thing either. They really took it to the next level. They put Christian in a golden carriage and drove him through the streets of Copenhagen and as Monty Python might say there was much rejoicing. It was a very clever PR move from the anti-Struency camp who successfully stitched him up as an adulterous, traitorous usurper. Now, poor old Struency, he remained imprisoned in Castellet, a fortress in Copenhagen, until the 28th of April in 1772. And on that date, the punishment with which he'd been sentenced was finally carried out. Now, you'll remember that he had abolished the death the death penalty for theft But unfortunately, this didn't cover the theft of a kingdom or of a queen's fidelity, it seems. Because tragically, Struensy was sentenced to lose his right hand and also, perhaps a little more tragically, his head. And so after having his right hand cut off, it took three blows from an axe to finally sever Struensy's head and end his life. And his body was then disemboweled and quartered while his head was impaled on a spike and displayed to the 30,000 people who had flooded the streets to catch a glimpse of the whole grisly affair. But it wasn't just the execution of Stru and Z that uh, Juliana Maria had been carefully plotting. Other elements of the plot were running smoothly as well. She engineered a divorce between her stepson Christian and Caroline Matilda, who was then sent into exile, where sadly she died a few short years later at the age of 23, And now with very few obstacles between her and Christian VII, Juliana Maria finally had her turn to be thrust into a position of power. Between 1772 and 1784, she and her son Frederick, the half-brother of Christian VII, they became the de facto regents of Denmark, just as Struensee had been, although their politics were nowhere near as bravely forward-thinking. In fairness, his half-brother Frederick was definitely more liberal-minded than many at the time, but it wasn't this radical revolutionary Enlightenment thinking that Z had been so heavily influenced by. In 1784, however, this regency came to an end when Christian's son, also named Frederick, of course, took over as, prou- as a crown prince regent on behalf of his father. And finally, the troubled life of poor Christian VII ended on the 13th of March 1808, and his son became King Frederick VI. Christian was a long way removed from reality by the end, but he always seemed to harbour a deep sense of regret for what had happened to his friend, Struensee and, and in fact, today, this, uh, you can still see the lasting impact, the lasting legacy that this uh, this regret, perhaps even this guilt, had had on the addled mind of this poor man. Because in the Danish state archives, there is a drawing that Christian did of Struensee and, and one of his allies who was also executed in April 1772 And on the drawing is written a short and absolutely heartbreaking phrase in German. Ich hätte gern beide gerettet. I would have liked to have saved them both. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Johann Friedrich Strönsie. And I realise that... uh, Despite, you know, talking a big game about always getting German pronunciation right, I stuffed up his name. So, I changed so much throughout the entire podcast, but, you know, whatever. It's called Half History, and that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. Thanks so much for having hanging out and listening to the show. We have got the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way right here and right now. Half dot History.net, the website. You can use links there to subscribe to the show on uh, on iTunes, on Spotify, on Android. Play. Please go and leave a review if you have got the time on uh, on iTunes for all of that algorithmic benefit that it brings me. Uh, you can also get in touch with the show just as Birke Uenschler did. Uh, if you want to uh, send in a, a topic suggestion, please. do have got a big long list of them, so I can't guarantee I'll get to it, but I'll do my best. Uh, you can also buy swag. Merch is available at the Halfass History Shop, uh, bigcartelcom history or is it uh, halfarsedhistory.BigCartel.com. Try them both; one of them will work. Um, and of course, if you uh, are in, interested in uh, you know frittering away even more of your money for the benefit of this podcast, patreoncom history is the best place to do that. Uh, you can join all of the exalted Patreon members, patron supporters, in, uh, in, in gaining a wide range of exclusive Patreon-only benefits. Uh, the pledges start at as low as a dollar a month. If you want to chip in, I'd, I'd be I'd be very, very grateful, of course. Uh, and uh, I'm very thankful to all the people who, who uh, continue to do so. Anyway, we are going to wrap this show up. Uh, thanks again for listening and hanging out. We, I do hope to have your company once again next week. Going to close out the show with a question posed on Reddit, as, as usual. This one, uh, you know, we talked about the Enlightenment a fair bit today. And uh, Reddit historian Dr. Feargood has a question for us. What percentage of the population had to have lost weight for it to become known as the Age of Enlightenment?